welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for yourselves and everyone else all over the world. And no matter how difficult that may be for so many, and God knows it can be hard, remember, in the end, what others did or did not do, or how they loved or did not love, affects them only. And what we did or did not do, or how we loved or did not love, will affect us only. But in order to positively transform that which we do not like in this world right now, to fix that which we see is broken, be it from the past or present, we must first correct ourselves and begin to express and radiate those higher qualities of our own mighty I Am Presence. For therein lies our individual and our collective power to produce the necessary changes in the world that we all desire. And believe me when I say, we are the revolution and we are the solution when we learn to utilize the God-given power within each and every one of us. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life And y'all be loved. This book was written in the 1860s, when reliable information about Hinduism was just starting to filter back to the West. Jacqueline was searching for the roots of Western esoteric traditions in the Far East. The high point of this book is the travelogue of his encounters in India with a fakir, who demonstrates his siddhas, yogic powers, exuberantly. There is no doubt that the initiation in ancient times did not consist of a knowledge of the great religious works of the age, such as the Vedas, the Zendavesta, the Bible, etc., which everybody studied, but rather of the admission of a small number of priests and savants to an occult science, which had its genesis, its theology, its philosophy, and its peculiar practices, which it was forbidden to reveal to the vulgar herd. India has preserved all the manuscript treasures of its primitive civilization. The initiated have never abandoned any of their old beliefs or practices. It is, therefore, in our power to lift the veil completely from the Brahmanic initiations. After comparing the philosophical doctrines of the adepts of the Petrus with those of the Jewish Kabbalists, we shall go on to show the relations or connection between the initiated of other nations and the initiated of the Hindu pagodas. When ten years have been spent in the first degree of initiation and there still remains an equal period of time before the Grihastas and Purohitas can become Sannyasas and Banaprasthas, or, in other words, call arrive at the second degree of initiation, many prayers must be added to the morning, noon, and evening ceremonies of ablution. When he has reached this period of his life the candidate is no longer his own master. He spends almost all of his time in prayers, fastings, and in mortifications of every description. His nights are partly devoted to ceremonies of evocation in the temple under the direction of the superior guru. He eats only once a day, after sunset. 
All the occult forces are put in operation to modify his physiological organization and give his powers a special direction. Few Brahmins ever arrive at the second degree of initiation. The mysterious and terrible phenomena which they produce cannot be put in operation without the exercise of a supernatural power, which very few are enabled to master. Most Brahmins, therefore, never get beyond the class of Grihastas and Purohitas. We shall see, however, when we have finished with the prayer and external formula, the object of which is to discipline the intellect by the daily repetition of the same acts, and when we approach the subject of the manifestations and phenomena, which the initiates of the first degree claim to perform, a claim which is apparently well-founded, that their faculties have been developed to a degree which has never been equaled in Europe. As for those who belong to the second, and particularly the third classes, they claim that time and space are unknown to them, and that they have command over man and death. Having spent 20 years of his life after receiving the first degree of initiation, during which the body is mortified by fasting and privations of every kind, and the intellect is trained and disciplined by means of prayers, invocations, and sacrifices, the candidate finally takes his place in one of the three following categories. Priesta, he remains at the head of his family until his death, and attends to his social duties and business, whatever it may be. Of all that he has been taught he only retains the power to evoke the domestic spirits, or in other words, those in the same genealogical line as himself, with whom it is lawful for him to communicate within the sanctuary which it is his duty to reserve for them in his house. Purohita, he becomes a priest attached to the popular cult and takes part in all ceremonies and family festivals, both in temples and private dwellings. Phenomena of possession come exclusively within his province, he is the grand exorcist of the pagodas. Fakir, he becomes a performing fakir, and from this moment forward all his time is employed in the manifestation of occult power by means of the public exhibition of exterior phenomena. Neither Grastas, Porohitas, nor Fakirs are ever admitted to the second degree of initiation. Their studies are ended, and with the exception of the Fakirs, who are constantly in communication with those who have been initiated into the higher degrees, in order to augment their magnetic and spiritual power, they take no part in the mystic instruction, which is given in the temples. Only a few among those who have distinguished themselves in their studies for the first degree are able to pass through the terrible ordeal of the higher initiation or arrive at the dignity of a sannyasi or cenobite. The sannyasi lives exclusively in the temple, and he is only expected to appear at remote intervals, on solemn occasions, in cases where it is important to impress the popular imagination by a superior class of phenomena. The Agrauchata Parikshai is silent as to the course of training they have to undergo. The formulas of prayer and evocation were never committed to writing, but were taught orally, in the underground crypts of the pagodas. We are able therefore to prosecute our investigations into the subject of the second degree of initiation only by studying the phenomena produced by the sannyasi, a list of which we find in the second book of the Agrauchata. It is not until he has spent a further period of 20 years in the study of the occult sciences and manifestations that the sannyasi becomes a sannyasi nirvani or naked cenobite, so-called, because he was not to wear any garments whatever, thus indicating that he had broken the last tie that bound him to the earth. We are limited to such means of information as are obtainable by the uninitiated. The book of the Petrus, or spirits, which is our guide in this inquiry, contains no explanation with regard to the mysterious occupations in which the sannyasis nirvanis, who have been initiated in the third degree, engage. Occult Science in India, by Louis Jacoliot, 1919.
Crisis Unveiled, Volume 2, Chapter 2. The Fakirs, although they can never reach beyond the first degree of initiation, are, notwithstanding, the only agents between the living world and the silent brothers, or those initiates who never cross the thresholds of their sacred dwellings. The Fukura yogis belong to the temples, and who knows but these cenobites of the sanctuary have far more to do with the psychological phenomena which attend the fakirs, and have been so graphically described by Jacqueline, than the Petrus themselves. Who can tell but that fluidic specter of the ancient Braham seen by Jacqueline was the skin Lekka, the spiritual double, of one of these mysterious sannyasi. Although the story has been translated and commented upon by Professor Purdy, of Geneva, still we will venture to give it in Jacqueline's own words. A moment after the disappearance of the hands, the fakir continuing his evocations, mantras, more earnestly than ever, a cloud like the first, but more opalescent and more opaque, began to hover near the small brazier, which, by request of the Hindu, I had constantly fed with live coals. Little by little it assumed a form entire human, and I distinguished the specter, for I cannot call it otherwise, of an old Braham sacrificator, kneeling near the little brazier. He bore on his forehead the sign sacred to Vishnu, and around his body the triple cord, sign of the initiates of the priestly caste. He joined his hands above his head, as during the sacrifices, and his lips moved as if they were reciting prayers. At a given moment, he took a pinch of perfumed powder and threw it upon the coals, it must have been a strong compound, for a thick smoke arose on the instant, and filled the two chambers. When it was dissipated, I perceived the specter, which, two steps from me, was extending to me its fleshless hand, I took it in mine, making a salutation, and I was astonished to find it, although bony and hard, warm, and living. Art thou, indeed, said I at this moment, in a loud voice, an ancient inhabitant of the earth? I had not finished the question, when the word am, yes, appeared and then disappeared in letters of fire, on the breast of the old Braham, with an effect much like that which the word would produce if written in the dark with a stick of phosphorus. Will you leave me nothing in token of your visit? I continued. The spirit broke the triple cords, composed of three strands of cotton, which begirt his loins, gave it to me, and vanished at my feet. O Brahma! What is this mystery which takes place every night? When lying on the matting, with eyes closed, the body is lost sight of, and the soul escapes to enter into conversation with the Petrus. Watch over it, O Brahma, when, forsaking the resting body, it goes away to hover over the waters, to wander in the immensity of heaven, and penetrate into the dark and mysterious nooks of the valleys and grand forests of the Haimavat. Agrushata Parikshai The fakirs, when belonging to some particular temple, never act but under orders. Not one of them, unless he has reached a degree of extraordinary sanctity, is free from the influence and guidance of his guru, his teacher, who first initiated and instructed him in the mysteries of the occult sciences. Like the subject of the European mesmerizer, the average fakir can never rid himself entirely of the psychological influence exercised on him by his guru. Having passed two or three hours in the silence and solitude of the inner temple in prayer and meditation, the fakir, when he emerges thence, is mesmerically strengthened and prepared, he produces wonders far more varied and powerful than before he entered. The master has laid his hands upon him, and the fakir feels strong. It may be shown, on the authority of many Brahmanical and Buddhist sacred books, that there has ever existed a great difference between adepts of the higher order and purely psychological subjects, like many of these fakirs, who are mediums in a certain qualified sense. 
True, the fakir is ever talking of Petrus, and this is natural, for they are his protecting deities. But are the Petrus disembodied human beings of our race? This is the question, and we will discuss it in a moment. H. P. Blavatsky We say that the fakir may be regarded in a degree as a medium, for he is, what is not generally known, under the direct mesmeric influence of a living adept, his sannyasi or guru. When the latter dies, the power of the former, unless he has received the last transfer of spiritual forces, wanes and often even disappears. Why, if it were otherwise, should the fakirs have been excluded from the right of advancing to the second and third degree? The lives of many of them exemplify a degree of self-sacrifice and sanctity unknown and utterly incomprehensible to Europeans, who shudder at the bare thought of such self-inflicted tortures. But however shielded from control by vulgar and earthbound spirits, however wide the chasm between a debasing influence and their self-controlled souls, and however well protected by the even knotted magical bamboo rod which she receives from the guru, still the fakir lives in the outer world of sin and matter, and it is possible that his soul may be tainted, perchance, by the magnetic emanations from profane objects and persons, and thereby open an access to strange spirits and gods. To admit one so situated, one not under any and all circumstances sure of the mastery over himself, to a knowledge of the awful mysteries and priceless secrets of initiation, would be impracticable. It would not only imperil the security of that which must, at all hazards, be guarded from profanation, but it would be consenting to admit behind the veil a fellow being, whose mediumistic irresponsibility might at any moment cause him to lose his life through an involuntary indiscretion. The same law which prevailed in the Eleusinian mysteries before our era, holds good now in India. Not only must the adept have mastery over himself, but he must be able to control the inferior grades of spiritual beings, nature spirits, and earthbound souls, in short, the very ones by whom, if by any, the fakir is liable to be affected. H. P. Blavatsky Become acquainted with the great immortal fire of the angelic host's eternal love. Demand that your world become now, a son of its victorious presence, filled with the fullness of every good thing and charged with immortal freedom to enable you to go forth, and give to a world the sunshine of the love of the angelic host. Now this sounds like it was in the vernacular, but it isn't. I'm going to ask you, wouldn't you like to be, each of you, an understudy to an angel? Had you ever thought of that? Applause, audience rising. Thank you, precious ones. Won't you be seated please? I won't keep you much longer, but may I make it clear to you tonight, that only the angels can teach you what the angels know. Only they know the power of the sacred fire of their love. You cannot get that knowledge of their power or the flame of their love from anywhere except them, for every cosmic being is an angel. Every ascended master is an angel. You may become one too someday, laughter. I hope it's soon. But you do not have to make your ascension in order to become the user of some of the powers and the qualities and the flames of our love. You may practice the use of these flames while yet unascended, and thus you will become more efficient after your ascension. So, from tonight, won't you make your world a son of the victorious love of the angelic host, and demand their presence with you, that the flame of their love may enter into your business affairs, protect all that is constructive, 
make you victorious over every limitation, and help you to fulfill the divine plan in its ever-expanding happiness of perfection's flame. As I said to you before, I am quite partial to the angelic host, and I expect I'll always remain so. I have guarded, a great many times I have consumed unspeakable creations, and yet I use only one thing, the flame of immortal love from the great central sun whose power is beyond anything in this whole system of worlds, to manifest. So, I am not offering you lightly, a gift of such tremendous power and import. And may I say to you tonight, the most important thing in your daily existence, the most important thing for every one of you every instant while you yet remain unascended, is your continuous, momentary, conscious, constant use of the immortal flame of cosmic Christ love, first from your beloved I am presence, then from the angelic host and the cosmic being's great octave of life, until wherever you move, your world is that perfection, ever pouring forth its freedom to all. And you will never be free from disturbance until you have called this flame of immortal love into yourselves, to make you its mastery over all that is not love. Beloved Archangel Michael, The angelic hosts are your guardians quite as well as your beloved I am presence. And may I say to you, your beloved I am presence and higher mental bodies hold their eternal mastery of victorious power over everything in this world, by that flame of love from the great central sun. If you choose to make the outer self of each one its victorious commanding presence, its cosmic law and action in the physical world, then all that it contains within its heart will unfold to you, and you will find in your outer use more than you can ever use in this world. All powers are within that flame of love from the angelic host, and their service is love alone. If you wish to become like them, you too must become the flame and service of love alone, that love from the central sun that is all of all, ever expanding for eternity. So, when there is a lack of anything in your world, stop a moment and realize, it is the lack of this flame of love that produces a condition that distresses you. As you call this flame into action to take its place, command that flame of our immortal love to become for you the thing that you require to go forward happily and fulfill the great divine plan the ascended master's way. Precious ones, if responsibility seemed to weigh heavily upon you, please conquer that feeling. Your light couldn't expand if you don't take responsibility. There is no other way to enable the light within to ever grow brighter except as you draw it forth in use. And if you don't have responsibility, you won't use it. The outer self is just built that way. It will not let that light expand unless it carries responsibility. So, if you are carrying responsibility, it's a consolation to know that while you are carrying it, it forces you to draw forth from your mighty I am presence and the ascended host, these greater powers of life which enable your light to become so bright that one day it bursts into the eternal flame and takes you into the ascension. May the great legions of the violet-consuming flame, the angels of the violet-consuming flame, attend you now with love, the purity, the forgiveness which you require to enable you to go forward with happiness, with contentment, and with that feeling of victorious control over every condition that tries to disturb you because it is not love. Only that which is opposed to love can cause you disturbance, therefore, if disturbance appears, just make up your mind that your main business in life, day by day, hour by hour, and moment by moment, is to command this flame to come forth in outer physical action, and become for you the mastery of perfection. And the cosmic law of that immortal love becomes the controlling authority of the outer world. And love, that love, is the fulfilling of the law. When you become that law in action, all things will obey you, all good will seek you, all things will bless you, because through that love they will become the greater perfection and happiness that is the fulfillment of the divine plan for all. 
I commend to you its glorious presence, to its great divine peace, to its everlasting healing power, and to its purity that will call forth from the heights of creation, all the illumination you'll ever require to take you through anything and make you successful, victorious, the master over all that would seek to obstruct your way. May my legions of immortal love, whose flame is eternal existence, bear to you their cosmic gifts, and flood you with miracles without limit, until you know the truth of the words I have spoken tonight, and they have become for you living flames in your world to produce perfection that forever sets all free. Thank you, and good night. Beloved Archangel Michael, 